I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast. I'm Anton Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brothers. And for this month's roundtable, we're discussing M. Night Shyamalan's latest supernatural thriller, Knock at the Cabin. If you have yet to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, please consider doing so. It only takes you a few seconds to rate us, but it really does help us to reach more and more listeners. But now, on to the show. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. Hi there. Can I talk to you for a little bit? You have to come inside right now. There were four of them. What do we say? You shouldn't make things up when we're talking about... Can you open the door, please? They're breaking in! Fuck us, you baby. We're not here to hurt you. But you have to stay here in the cabin with us. Families throughout history have been chosen to make this decision. Your family must choose to willingly sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. For every no you give us, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. It's really happening. Sweetheart, close your eyes. Will you make a choice? This past August, we asked whether Jordan Peele is the new M. Night Shyamalan as we analyzed Peele's sci-fi thriller Nope in comparison to Shyamalan's Signs, which was celebrating its 20th anniversary this past summer. I had asked Anders and Aaron whether the provocation, or what could even be described as the silliness of the ending of Signs, was in fact part of the point. Shyamalan doesn't want to make it easy to buy that film's miracle. If it were too easy, it would go against the film's underpinning themes. I can't help but think that Shyamalan's latest film, Knock at the Cabin, is doing something similar by inviting the audience to question the plausibility of its scenario. Jonathan Groff's Eric, his partner Andrew, played by Ben Eldridge, and their young adopted daughter Wen, played by Kristen Kui, are enjoying a vacation at a remote cabin in the woods. As the film begins, Wen is outside alone catching grasshoppers, when a big man, played by Dave Batista, appears from behind a tree and begins talking to her. Leonard, as Batista's character introduces himself, and his three companions, there's Rupert Grint's Redmond, Nikki Amuka Bird's Sabrina, and Abby Quinn's Adrian, detain the family occupying the cabin and explain to them that they face a dire choice. They must choose to sacrifice a member of their family or a calamity. Global in scale and catastrophic in destruction will be released on humanity. They have four chances to make the choice, one chance for each of the four kidnapper prophets, after which point humanity's existence on Earth will end so the family must weigh their sacrifice against the end of the world. I was struck by how Shamlin doesn't approach this contrived supernatural scenario as an exercise in suspending the audience's belief. Rather, he actually invites the audience to test their belief in the scenario. Jonathan Groff's Eric is more believing, for instance, while Andrew is much more skeptical. Like many Shamlin movies, the characters take on certain types and perform roles in the film's philosophical dialogue. Although Knock at the Door is based on the 2018 novel, The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay, the story fits in well with Shyamalan's film project, 
of creating moral and existential fables in the mode of cinematic thrillers and episodes of The Twilight Zone. Most of Shyamalan's films are essentially what-if stories. I like Knock at the Cabin, but it's not among Shyamalan's best. Nonetheless, I'm left thinking that Shyamalan is one of the gutsiest filmmakers out there. Some have said Shyamalan just has too much ego for only a handful of filmmaking tricks, perhaps best exemplified by his ego-driven split from Disney Touchstone to make his modern fairy tale, Lady in the Water. Few filmmakers working in mainstream American movies seem as willing to pursue an out-there idea to its fullness and final conclusion, or to restrain their formal approach to such a prolonged degree. Of course, on both points, we could easily point to a more daring idea and a more formalist technique, but who's doing both as consistently as part of their whole filmmaking program, while at the same time trying to reach mainstream audiences? So, brothers, do you agree about Shyamalan's guts as a filmmaker? Anders, do you think that's the case? Or on the other hand, is he sort of growing stale and boring in terms of his formal and thematic tendencies? I am of the opinion that Shyamalan is a little bit stale and boring. Not not too much. <laughs> you, can I wanna, you can say it if you think. Yeah. No, but I, I am a little bit reticent. To, to I think that that's a can be a very glib or dismissive take on him. I remember as early as like the early two thousands that it was to the point like the whole idea of the him being a twist filmmaker became a real thing, yeah. right? And to the point that there, I remember that on on that old Robot Chicken show there was like a whole skit once about M Night Shyamalan. Ooh, what a twist! Uh, very very silly, really annoying, and it annoyed me because I thought that it undersold what Shyamalan is capable of as a filmmaker. And I, I do think he is. That said, I actually, maybe perhaps my, well, it's hard for me to say really, because I haven't, after Lady in the Water, I didn't really keep up with a lot of his films. I did watch the Unbreakable sequels and spinoffs, Split and Glass, but this, I never saw Old, never saw The Visit, never saw The Happening or any of his other just sort of the, what, the Will Smith one or the Last Airbender movie. So, so leaning towards him being more tired and kind of boring. Yeah, now. but it, but it was but I can't really say like did he? There seems to be a real formal consistency to those first few yeah. uh, breakthrough films, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and I think Knock at the Cabin fits more into that. Okay, okay. So I there's something I don't know. It just it's I, and I know it's a little bit of a smaller film in some ways, and maybe it's not so much that. Like I, I think you have some good points about his his daring, his formal approach, and things like that in some ways. But I also, for me, I'm not sure the film. Like there are moments where it kind of started to lose me a little bit in terms of like whether I was I was kind of just like just hurry up, hurry up, get to yeah. It. But so so in a quick take, like did you like the movie or not? And then do you think it exemplifies Shyamalan's better tendencies or his worst tendencies? And I'll put that to Aaron right after that. I give the film, I, I think I'm moderately in, like it. Like, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad film. I think the people who like are dismissive of it. Uh, I don't get that. I think that it's uh, critical reception is, is, you know, fairly appropriate. But um, I don't think it's among his, his his very best. Yeah. Aaron, what do you think? I, I think you saw it more like a couple of weeks ago, right? I saw it opening night. <laughs> oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> Partially just on a whim because it was I wanted to go see a movie and it was it was out that day. I was like, okay, cool. Um, I like Shyamalan in this new phase of his where he seems to be the kind of genre expert. It's he's really settled into that 
Twilight Zone aspect, which is always there, but there's no more, no longer a prestige sheen on it, right? Like kind of a veneer of uh, respectability. Yeah. And I actually think that has allowed him to pursue some of his interests in a lot, with a lot more um, abandon and without the pretensions that you get in something like Lady in the Water. Mm. Can I ask a question there, really quick, Aaron? That would you so would you you would count the visit old in this, or would you also count Split in that as well? I'd count Split in that. They're okay. all. Yeah. I mean, he literally was working with Blumhouse for a while mm-hmm. with the, with those movies with Split with Glass was Split um, in the sort of the fake out that it's actually. An unbreakable movie. Yeah, exactly. But it's it fits within that Blumhouse idea, and you you mentioned it, Anton, of his coming on. You know, he makes movies under budget, and he makes yeah. movies that are like smaller in scale now. But that almost seems to feed into his interest because his movies often have those kind of potboiler element of like, you know, the second half of Signs. It's just you're trapped on the farm and you're not leaving it, and it's just that kind of um, do or die scenario allows him to really put the screws to the characters and see what they're made of, and then by extension, what the audience is made of. And so with with um, Knock at the Cabin, I enjoy it as basically a like more B movie version of Signs. <laughs> I actually think it's quite <laughs> I good. I, I think it's one of the my first thought coming out of it beyond um, my kind of chuckling over how the ending really fits Shyamalan. Like it's just such a distillation of him in the sense that this movie is maybe the signs to his like late phase B movies that signs is to his early prestige films. It's the one that kind of coalesces so much of his thematic obsessions yeah. And really, really hits you with it to the point where some people are going to be like, man, this is just so dumb. <laughs> Why are you so on this a faith thing? And it's like, no, that's the whole point of watching movies in, in his mind. But be- aside from that coming over, the other thing I noticed was like, oh, man, how refreshing is it to watch a movie that's like 100 minutes and that all the shots are like really considered and really strongly like there's strong visual choices. It's not doing anything that it shouldn't be doing in the visual setups. It's got some interesting ways to frame scenes, but it's not like overly fussy about it. Um, It keeps the plot moving despite the fact that it's a stuck scenario. And (laughs) it's just like the editing rhythms, the way that the care, all the actors are quite good. Like it's just every element in terms of form is doing what Shyamalan wants it to do which is in service to the story and it's the make or break is dependent on the story not on the presentation of it and I think Mm -hmm. that's something that's not said enough nowadays where so many movies do break down on a formal level but Shyamalan it's like no the guy's just stylistically knows exactly what he's doing he's better than most directors in that respect I do think your characterization of this as like a a b-movie is like really apt and we're not like using that as necessarily like a pejorative it's just more of like Right, like the the ambitions of the film are lesser. It, you're right. Like it's he's not trying for prestige. He also doesn't have a, a budget for prestige. But the, some of the features you're describing as being sort of um, enjoyable are what we actually would associate with those really good B movies of the past, where we've drawn out where you notice we we would start to notice like oh you know like this was a you know an old sci-fi movie, old detective type movie, but the the formally the cinematography the the camera set up all of this is very good um and it's doing everything it can do within its sort of uh potential like really well so like i i appreciate you know even if it's um he sort of has to work at this sort of level now like i you know i don't know if he could get the budget to do i don't know like 150 maybe maybe uh maybe not um but i appreciate that he's sort of consistently turning out these types of movies now 
sorry, Anders, I think I cut into you, but like, what do you think? Like, are you, do you sort of see this as a B movie? Um, is that yeah, a bad thing, I, a good I, thing? I, that's actually a helpful framing. Um, and I think what you note, the strengths of this movie are its formal elements. The, yeah, the editing, the acting, um, <clears throat> the way it tells its story is actually pretty good. And when I say that, Maybe the film loses me a little bit. I don't think that that's because of the pacing or anything like that. I think, in fact, I don't even think the script, I think the script is pretty decent. So is it I the think, whole premise? I think concept? it's the premise and the story. I And I, I think it's a really difficult one. And I don't know if we're ready to get into all that yet. But yeah. I, I think that, like, for me, the premise of the movie, I was very curious going into it because I was like, how are you going to, like, if someone came to you, like, what reason – and these are the fun – the neat thing about having this conversation is this is essentially what the film puts the characters through these same questions, right? Like, what reason yeah. would you have yeah. to believe a person, right? Like, there's no reason you should. And Testimony, right? <laughs> right. It relies on personal testimony. And anyway, I don't know. We can, we can get into the ending of the film a little bit later because I think that – I think that the question is a very interesting one because my position is that – Andrew in the, the film is correct in being like, these people are insane. Why should we believe anything yes. you have to say? Okay. Because they've provided no evidence at all. So for you, you're like, to, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is you're saying that you are not fully on board for the premise and its execution because you aren't persuaded um, and you don't necessarily believe that someone would be persuaded given the evidence exactly. that this is the end of the world, that they have to make this choice to sacrifice someone or all hell will break loose. Right. Now, the way the film goes about trying to solve, not like the you know, a solution to a mystery, but solve the, the filmmaking trick of how do you make this uh, more believable Funny enough, again, to go back to science, uses some of the one of the same tricks that science does, which is that you never see the global catastrophe and things very much first on first hand. It's all yeah. through television, right? And those kind of things. And it but it and it raises an interesting meta question is like, how do we believe? Why do we we take for granted the reality that we are fed through media? We have to. And we must, because we cannot be everywhere at all times, right? And so it really comes down to these interesting questions of trust. So I think there's a kernel of a philosophical idea in there, but I'm pretty convinced that without having read the novel, that probably most of these same issues exist in the novel. Okay. Do you, have you guys read what the ending of the novel is? No, no, no. Do you want me to spoil it for you? Cause it's yeah, very like, different. I'm, than I'm never going to read it. I'm not, I'm not going to go. Uh, so, read the novel. so the, I'm kind of curious cause I like when I, when I dig into a movie and I find out that it's got a novel, I'm like, Oh, okay. And it's the genre novel. I'm always down for reading more horror. Um, once I explain this to you, you'll totally understand why Shyamalan was drawn to it and why he changed <laughs> it. So in the novel, it's the exact same setup and everything, except for what happens around halfway point through the novel is that Andrew has a fight with Leonard after he gets the gun and he accidentally shoots Wen and kills Wen. And Wen is now dead. And Andrew and Eric essentially decide that they do not care they will not live in a universe in which God would want their daughter dead or them to deal, do this kind of decision. And they decide, screw you to everybody and allow the apocalypse to happen. That's the novel <laughs> ending. That's very different. Yeah. But so it, he takes it, the premise, specifically but goes the book a is direction. a, the book is a, one of the, it's, it's kind of like an atheist screed against if God exists, I hate him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and Shaman makes it about 
the Dostoevsky. Yeah. You, if yeah. what does it Rage. mean to do the right thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like belief requires you to care about others more than you, and he pushes that. Right. <laughs> I was curious whether they would go the route of having one of the family members accidentally kill, and then that doesn't count because yeah. it has to be chosen. Right. It has to be this. For it to be an authentic sacrifice, it can't be something you accidentally... Like, nobody can say it's like, well, you sacrificed that $20 to that, you know, say a homeless person when it just fell out of your pocket and they found it. That's not a sacrifice, right? Yeah. But don't you think it's kind of interesting, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the the novel is... But you can understand why he's drawn to it because it's this question of what do you believe? What evidence will turn you? It's this kind of enormous moral hinge question that ties up with these genre interests, these supernatural interests. But there's, of course, no way that Shyamalan would ever go for that ending. And it's not just a commercial instinct Hollywood thing. It's the fact that, like, it would be anathema to his whole approach to characters learning. Well, I mean, that's why he, like, he's drawn to this. It's the, uh, for your consideration, a cabin in the woods, a family is confronted by four people. You know, like, and like, he's drawn to it for it's like it's Twilight Zone potential. Like this, this is a, this is, it's a compelling um, scenario, right? You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. I was reminded of something like like another film based on a list or Twilight Zone premise, like The Box. You hit this yeah. button somewhere, someone's yeah. gonna die, right? Like, although that one's I can, more, I can ex- it's, a, it's a Kubrick Twilight Zone. Yeah. I can accept that within a sort of Twilight Zone sort of. Uh, so why why weren't you convinced? I guess I, or like, it's not convinced. It's like the film, as Shyamalan has now resolved it, resolves when Eric decides he believes them, and he but he believes them not only because of the persuasiveness of Leonard and the others and what's going on, but because he himself experiences yep. the revelation because he sees something in the mirror. Perhaps he sees a, the, yeah, figure, a revelation yeah. to him. And I'm like, so then there is no actual solution. The solution is mm. you have to experience it. You have to have a revelation of your own in order to, because otherwise you would never do that. Like if you, but if once you became convinced Right, like that. So it's it's true. It's not as interesting as science to me. Like but science is more. No, don't you like? I I agree with you in the sense of it makes it a, somewhat of a frustrating narrative solution because there's an impossible there the 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 mathematical solution of the narrative cannot solve itself without an, a variable entering halfway through right. that you have no control over. So it's not which rational. Is like the, which I think works. I like that's okay, but then why no, this but, whole but, premise is <laughs> kind of sadistic. But I, it is kind of sadistic. And that's one of the funny things with Shyamalan. We can, I think we should dig into that. But I just think it's so funny because this is why I think s- certain critics I've noticed and certain people have tended to not like this movie of the of the of the minority that dislikes it because most people like it i don't dislike it just to be no 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 i'm not saying you but the, the people lots of them gravitate towards the novel because the, the novel is more of that like mm. humanist anti transcendent message to me though <laughs> no but it's the whole element of the ecstatic vision that eric has which might be explained away through his head injury yeah. and we don't actually yeah. get an answer for it is is kind of this is what i'm talking about where like shaman is tapping into something so brilliantly 
encapsulation of faith because he has identified that there is a like a layer. There is a layer that you a person cannot ever cross through rational thinking alone. There is no way that will ever make you be a person who says, I you're not gonna think believe in God or believe in the supernatural based off reason. No. There always has to be a yeah. t- it's signs. Something, you have to tell it's what signs. kind of person are you? See what you have to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? question this way is it possible that there are no coincidences but you have to but that's the thing you have to see it it's not just the testimony the testimony can lead you to look for it but you have to see it for yourself and i think it's funny that a b movie is a b movie like this is shaman somehow getting out this actually very elegant way of showing how faith works it's a very convoluted concept but it's actually like extremely profoundly true that essential challenge so aaron i think you make a good point that i like you could on a sort of materialistic i mean so it's a it's a supernatural um it's obviously a supernatural premise but Mm -hmm. um but you could explain you know in a a more skeptical way um eric's uh seeing something as the condition of his head head injury and even um andrew mentions that right like he's Mm -hmm. like you know you're you're, you're not concussed. seen properly. You're concussed. Um, but I think I think that I mean partly why I wanted to set up that comparison with signs because I do think they are uh, entertaining similar questions, and I think that that central conversation uh, between Meryl and um, Mel Gibson's character, Graham. Yeah. yeah, Graham, um, about you know what kind of a person are you, and do you see miracles uh, or you just see coincidences i think that's key because i also think as um Shyamalan, someone who loves to parcel out background information in small little packages that sort of try to explain a lot in those very sort of precise flashbacks we get a few of those of the couple and um within those i think we're already and i think this is a testament to his ability sort of to build in that to build character through that restrained form. Um, we already know why Eric would be the one who would have that, um, would see or, or would make the choice and why not? Mm-hmm. And cause he had faith in that they could do, make it as in, in faith in humanity. Like, right. Yeah. Like Andrew essentially doesn't have faith in humanity. No, you know, and, and again, he explains it in a way that it's also not, um, what's interesting about this one is also, it's not just about your, like, you know, like, what kind of a person you are as a personality type. It's also like their experience that they've had, you know, like Andrew has gone through certain things that make him not have a lot of faith in, in humanity because of, you know, he's essentially had so many injustices against him, you know, as a gay man, things like that, the, the, the attack in the bar, things like that, which might be Raymond, which might, know. yeah, well, seems to be the one yeah, seems to be because he says O'Connor, what yeah. I'm intrigued by though, is that you get this weird, um, and I guess I don't know if it's a, a weakness of the film or or not. And I maybe this leans towards Andrew's camp. But uh, yeah, I don't know what to... Because he does want to build in... Shyamalan does want to build in a fair number of like reasons to distrust. And one of the, one of the most prominent ones is the fact that Rupert Grint's character is seems to be have been the person who attacked um, Andrew in a bar because he was gay. And... And then all of a sudden, you know, he's the one who started the the 
was it the like online forum to bring the people together and mm-hmm. there's a there were parceled out again we don't get any flashbacks of those characters we only get flashbacks of the uh, the couple and their experience with uh you know uh, picking out when at the, the orphanage and stuff but so we key we don't get any background information on them we're only told it but within that there's enough sort of red flags raised and it's weird because you're like so even you know i think we're left with the ending to conclude that this was sort of an end of the world scenario like you know but um but these people are maybe lunatics too and it's never actually it's one of those things right of where it's the uh if you're looking at it through clear eyes like they are lunatics because only a lunatic would do this but they might also be right and yeah, the apocalypse, yeah they're lunatics and they yeah. might be right that's the thing yeah yeah because it's you know a lot of people the message might be correct and they wouldn't do it because only a person who has faith that would lead you beyond all the rational would you actually do any of those actions. You would. Why would you want to get chopped up by some makeshift axe thing? Like it's it's horrifying. So just on that ending point, like I think the movie kind of gestures that it's probably the apocalypse and it's you know the the resolution that they've saved the world, but that the presence of the song in the car. That when he turns it on, it's the song that's playing earlier when it's the happy days, and now it, yeah, they ha- yeah they're yeah. happy. I, I forget the name of it, yeah, but that song coming back, and you know, Andrew turns it on, and then he turns it off, and then Wen turns it on again, and it's a, this really weirdly ambiguous moment where you don't know is it like this song will now haunt you and remind you, did you make the right choice for the rest of your life? But she also makes it so that he has to choose. So it turns on on the radio. It's the it it's by coincidence or whatever it's it's the family's happy song we we it's a it's aligned with a previous flashback that the, the audience gets so you know we ourselves sort of experience it as sort of a happy memory he turns it off she turns it back on and then this was the weird thing she turns it back on listens to it then turns it off looks over at her dad and he has to choose to turn it back on if he wants to listen. So she doesn't say, I'm going to make you listen to this mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And it, that to me, again, is this This is a, a movie that like emphasizes like sort of the choice. And that's partly mm-hmm. why I sort of described it as an existentialist fable. Like it requires the, the choice on all these different fronts. And I even think that that's one of the, the reasons why. Um, he had the family be like, you know, it's a gay couple and their adopted child because it builds in choice. Like there's earlier flashback scenes where they're like, we're choosing to uh, pick out this child. This wasn't something that came through coincidence and it's not family born of circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. You're just sort of born and this is your family. No, this is everything has been selected and chosen. And that like on all levels in this storytelling, it's like, the characters are forced to sort of make a choice and then sort of that's how they pursue it through. Yeah, I, I actually, that's a great point. I really like that you point out that, that it is, <clears throat> it, it serves this like really good thematic and narrative uh, purpose in the film. And it makes them, it, it makes their, their choice even more tragic in some ways too. It adds a layer of like, mm, yeah. And there's sort of that like, cause yeah. they're always affirming their choice. They have that like line between them, which is like, um, Oh, was it's like us, us together always, or always, something? yeah. But they also they'll reinforce the choice through sort of the the couples like sort of um, that we're bonded mantra. T- together, yeah. So I think that's very interesting. You're you're making me like a lot of aspects of the movie a lot more, making me un, like second, like I still, you know, like because I, 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 I like it, but you're, you're nudging me a little bit up. But I just wanted to say the one thing that kind of like it's this, it's kind of the same thing as science. And I was thinking back about my review of science from last year, and where I point out like the reason science works for me 
is because sus- the suspense and emotion works. Like the scene when Graham confronts his dying wife <clears throat> in the flashback, that yeah. scene yeah. makes or breaks the movie for you. Like really without that scene, the rest of the movie would be like, come on, there's aliens invading. They're going to beat them with water and all, you know, you, you're laughing. And like the, the other thing, this film, I think I would have almost liked to see a f- version of this basically exactly the same, but that the way the, the integration of the, uh, the plagues and, and disasters in a, a little bit differently. I, it, I think there's a little bit of haphazardness, but I, one thing I did like about those, the integration of those is that they never confirm it's never, those things can never confirm for them if it's real. Right. Because like, obviously the tsunami and earthquake. Do you mean like the, hours. sorry, like the TV clips that they yeah, turn the, on? The, the, to, the, to the three like tragic, like sort of events that start happening, yeah. like the, the, yeah. the plagues, the end times sort of signs. Yeah. The tsunami, the the pl- the virus, the virus, and, then and the airplane crashes. Yeah, those like and all of know, them could have all a of them could be coincidences potentially. Yes, natural or human agency exactly. scenario. I think at the very end, the lightning is a little more obvious, but at that point, it's already kind of the game is given away. But for like, I I kind of like that thematically, but it's dramatically. That it doesn't like this is a film that works really well talking with you guys about it, unpacking. I think some of the acting and the choices are solid. I'm not sure that it worked really well for me as like a suspenseful or scary movie. I like I wasn't really ever like scared of what was happening, even like the suspenseful scenes like in the bathroom. Like, with did you like this? Did you like the bathroom scene? Like, I thought that that was, was a well fine. done. A well yeah, it's well done, but like, it just, I wasn't really like, I kind of expected that, I guess. Sorry, can I just pose a question here? And is the reason perhaps why it's a little less than satisfying for you compared to Signs mm-hmm. is that the character whose enormous emotional journey and actual emotional underpinning of the story has already made the decision prior to us meeting him? Yeah, Leonard. It's Dave <laughs> Batiste's Leonard. Yeah. He's the main character. But we meet him after the momentous decision. So he's not a Graham Hess who has to come to that realization on screen. He's already had it. No, Eric like, is like Jonathan exactly. Is like, no, well, and, Andrew's and the central character. Yes. Andrew's the central character of, of the family because he's the most assertive. And he's the one who has the most baggage. And he, and he lives. <laughs> so yeah. he has the ending too. But Leonard is such a... Like Leonard is the guy who drives this. He's clearly the leader of the four. He's the last of them. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. haven't mentioned yet. They're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They all fit that. They and all if reading online is a suggestion, he's also seems to be the emotional anchor for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think a lot of that was Batista's like performance, like that incongruity of like a soft spoken, gentle man in this huge, imposing, scary body is very good. And like, you know, at first he seems kind of creepy the way he's almost talking with when and stuff. And then you're like, Oh, he's a, Great teacher. teacher. It makes yeah. sense. He knows how to do this. Yeah. yeah. When he comments on the appropriateness of the cartoon, and it's, it seems like a good cartoon. It's like I kind of loved like Batista in this, and I don't want to be like hyperbolic online personally. I know he's a good actor. He's the. I don't know why people don't. You know, maybe because Marvel's like in such for like film Twitter people. Marvel is just, he's like the like, best the character shit on. Guardians. Trax right? is <laughs> Trax is hilarious. Like he's one of the funniest parts of all the Marvel movies. He still makes and, me laugh when I watch when the kids. But then it. you know you see Blade Runner twenty forty nine. You see these other roles. Even Army of Army of the Dead, which I know you didn't really like, but like, he's good in it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, he even tries. Yeah, he tries to. Bring he makes me wish the movie was better so that it would like have made his performance more valuable. This is the first time where I think he's got a dramatic role. And a part that is actually big enough where I'm like, oh, I'm glad that he gets roles like this because he's very good in it. Stay back! 
I believe you were chosen because your family's love for each other is so pure. I know you've been through a lot and people haven't been fair to you. Drop the weapon and move away from Eric or I'll show you I was chosen to put a bullet in your head. Drop it now, Leonard, or I'll kill you. You're dooming us all, Andrew. You're dooming your husband. You're dooming your daughter. I'm done with you! I'm not listening to another goddamn word you say! It's time for the next sacrifice. Are you willing to make a choice? But it's interesting with him as your central character because, like, you were mentioning formal choices, Anton, and how how Shyamalan chooses to shoot Batista in this cramped space is actually evidence of just how formally intricate he is. The use of his head is the thing to, like, block Eric and Andrew in the cross-cutting. The, his yeah. kind of hulking body is this forever foreground object. Um it just speaks to how there's Shyamalan never does anything like boring. He's kind th- this is, you know, this is one of those Spielberg or Hitchcock comparisons, not thematically or anything, but just pure formally is that Shyamalan will always come up with the most interesting way to shoot the most basic uh, action Yeah, in a way that other directors will be like, Oh, we'll just do a two shot. It's fine. And he'll be like, no, 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 no. If you do this and this, he, it refuses, to he refuses to ever just do a basic shot. And you see someone who storyboards. Yeah. So it actually, I mean, again, that's linking back to uh, Spielberg too and uh, Hitchcock. But I actually think that you can tell when, well, again, this sounds weird, but you're like, there's something about when you know a director heavily storyboards, what it does is it seems to align the storytelling with the, the actual uh, camera work in a way that isn't always achieved when it's not some something with the 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 forethought like brings those two things together in a way that sometimes other films you're like it's not that the cinematography is bad or hindering but you're like you see like i just feel like with a, a Shyamalan movie with spielberg you know even like the fablemans which i watched recently you're just like the full alignment between camera and story is is intense mm-hmm. in everything it's writing and light you mentioned this and i uh, you know we had a whole episode on the fablemans me and anders but I just have to mention, like, you say that about Spielberg can't ever, everything has to be formally everything. And the scene where she gives him the camera that's like 10 minutes into the movie and where the shot is like pulls back door, follows her, comes down and like moves as she kneels down, the camera follows her down and moves back. So you get this perfect shot where the light is coming through the window and backlighting her. And here's your camera. We're going to make a film with daddy's camera. Like it's, that's the kind of decision where Spielberg does that in one shot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he probably like, just, like tosses it off. <laughs> I think you're right, though. It's like this alignment of the the tools of cinematic storytelling with a story and script in a way. If you're not storyboarding it, I think a lot of the directors who are good at that also are people who like t- shoot a lot of footage. Yeah, and they'll discover Sometimes, it like a Fincher or they'll discover like the montage. They discover that, that, that as Fincher has always said, there's you know a hundred thousand different ways to take a shot, and there's only one right one. Right? Or or alternatively, somebody who's shot a billion things and is such a pro at it, they don't Clint need Eastwood. the extra time. A Clint Eastwood or like Johnny Toe, who's famously does not storyboard his action scenes. 
or anything. He'll just go into the scenario of that day where they can film. And he's like, okay, we're doing this, 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 this. Cause he's made 50 movies and 50 TV shows. <laughs> or the Clint Eastwood, like just get it done. We got to get one take, one take, one take. I don't want to do a lot of takes. They're just going to have the baby. is just going to be a doll. <laughs> American. Cronenberg's like that too, though. He only does one take if nothing screws up. This is you trust the, that you, your way of telling it, you trust your, your knowledge and, and things like that. But you're also, but also these are often people who are not uh, indebted though to, to uh, certain uh, the really basic forms of coverage and stuff like that, as you say, they, they're people who who care about their camera, and I do think Shyamalan is one of those guys. Who, you know, this might be a weird comparison, but um, Aaron, the way you're describing the way Shyamalan shoots uh, Batista, and like I, I, I couldn't, I actually now I'm sort of so he seems so huge within the film, right? And you're right that he's sort of he's just like he sort of is everywhere within the cabin space when they when they've they've taken it over and like you know um the amount of uh close-ups that Shamlin chooses to shoot and there's to the point i i mean i'm not even sure the precise term but you're like it's so close on the face that we're not even seeing the full face a lot of the time and, yeah extreme close-up yeah and it's like but i i was i was thinking of actually um uh what do you call it uh the green mile in the way that uh oh J- john coffee or whatever. yeah uh what um Yes, Michael Clark. The, the way RP. he sh- the way he shot, and he just seems like insanely massive, huge, special. Like the way the way they shoots him, and there's something with that. Uh, you know, like they're both kind of like, for better or worse, the term like you know, like sort of gentle giant type characters. Yeah. But but they're also both these both these films are actually trying to tap into a um, mystical a mystical aspect, right? With the characters. Um, and, but you don't you don't feel like Leonard is um, disturbed the way that perhaps all three of the other kidnappers are. He seems the one who's most consciously made a choice, and it isn't sort of um, just being sucked up with something. And I don't know I don't know what to make of that. You you just spurred a, a thought in my mind that I actually had run through my mind earlier today that a film that in some weird ways. Uh, utilizes a very limited location and uh both basically the end of the world and things uh it was also directed by by frank darabon who did the green mile is uh the mist his adaptation of the stephen king film which i actually really like which but although it's definitely more of the uh fits more the nihilistic ending of the (laughs) novel yeah here but um interesting which is apparently not in the king book there's so but. many, there's so many cottage, your cottage or your cabin in the woods. Right? Yeah, like, but I, I think I actually would love to see Shyamalan do a Stephen King adaptation. That could be really interesting. So I don't want to derail, but going back to our discussion of signs last August yeah. and our comparisons with Peel, Jordan Peel, and my my endless trolling of people about Jordan Peel's the new Shyamalan, which. Like there's just more and more evidence every day. It's true. Um, <laughs> this but, it's more good, evidence. It's a good <laughs> see exactly. That's the thing. It's like people realize it's like this is a compliment. This is it. No, but the the movie, the most recent movie that Knock at the Cabin reminded me most of is Us. Oh yeah, yeah. With the but even it's, with yeah. the four home. <laughs> yes, exactly. Home the four invaders, home invaders. Home invasion. Which has end of the world scenario. This idea of backstory, which is hidden from us and parceled out periodically this ending that resolves but not entirely and the notion of like what 
what is like i don't know it's no the, but the thing is that one is so indicative of the way peel approaches yes. one so indicative of the way mm-hmm. shaman approaches because peel's thing like moves out and out and out to the point where i don't understand what the metaphor is actually like conveying by the time we get the hands across america thing <laughs> i don't actually know what he's saying yeah. anymore yeah. I, I, i'm like i don't get it while shaman goes in and in and in to the point where he gets so like pushed down onto the personal level that it's almost like is this now impenetrable to anybody who is not in perfect yeah. alignment with this character? <laughs> but that, but that's sort to me like is like so. I guess actually that that's interesting. So like one of the differences might be that at the end of the day, like um, Peel um, is interested in the uh, the social level in a way that Shamalan's not. Mm-hmm. Shamalan's interested in the personal level, so his story doesn't open up that same way. And even, you know, a close, sort of a a very claustrophobic type movie like uh, Get Out is is still operating in 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 the social addressing the social level. Right. Um, And even Shyamalan's most social allegories like um, The Village are a confined society, not society at large, but a society people have chosen to embed a, a specific community. Right. So his movies are always, um, in some sense, all of it take take signs about aliens coming to Earth, and he's interested in one family's dealing with this on one farm in rural Pennsylvania. Here again, it's the end of the world, and we get a family, we get four people. Another interesting difference would be, so if you compare it to us, um, Jordan Peele's interested in the other side, like the back backstory. Imagine a movie where we got um, this exact scenario, but we didn't get any backstory on the occupants of the cabin, and we only got the backstory on the the four people who show up, the four horsemen. Like it tells a different story, mm-hmm. and it shows also their different concerns and interests. Because then you'd have a whole story about like what kind of like social conditions and other stuff like led these people to become like the horsemen that like come to this cabin to do that sort of thing. But I also think you're right, Aaron, that like Shyamalan, um, if he thinks he's onto something, will repeat it and will stick to it and drive home the point in a way that I do think like annoys a lot of people. But he also doesn't want you to like, you know, like in this movie, you're like, I, what I admire about it is what I sort of said. It's like you, you take an idea and he clearly picked up that, you know, he loved this idea that he saw in this novel and you pursue that idea so fully and like just just the idea and anything that's not about that idea he's not interested in and he's just following through on that one specific thing and so that to me is why like you know i understand that there's like that this movie um i guess i I think some people are sort of bothered that like it the way it ends um it doesn't explain anything beyond the scenario where essentially that's laid out to us the viewer uh through the characters um but I was really struck by the fact that uh, there's a line, and I forget who says it, but there may be like, they're like, maybe, maybe this is how it's always been for families. And that what essentially it, I think then this movie is about is that you're like, it's essentially like, it's kind of like always the end of the world. And you're choosing how to operate against that potential of the end of the world. And what sacrifices you will make. And I think that's why it's a very affirming and, and, uh, hopeful film in that way actually yeah weirdly but it sets up even even within sort of like people who are like the plausibles and want to set mm-hmm. up like a world of me like okay well 
are you saying that this has happened before? And I would be like, well, yeah, like if you want to take it that way, I'd say like within this this story world, Shamlin's setting up the possibility that this has happened to other families and they've been confronted with this mm-hmm. choice and they had to make a certain choice in order to continue the world. I thought of an interesting also comparison between this and Nope. Um, oh, which yeah, yeah. I definitely, I think I, as the year goes on, like better than you guys. And I kept thinking about some of those things in, in the same way that this film allows you to, I think, I think to think I'll about watch it. I maybe next, but summer. the, um, the, the role also though, that like this, like obsession with like belief and needing to see something and, and stuff is, is a, is an interesting, uh, aspect in our society which no longer you can't believe what you see anymore i mean we now have ai generated images and like you know stuff like that so it's like it's like a, a holding so what shyamaline gets at is the sort of what ecstatic fat faith aspect that of like latching onto an experience of something right not necessarily the fidelity of the image or like things like that but rather an experience which um converts you in a way i guess one one thing maybe just like sort of a final point on sort of some of these threads like i thought i am sort of intrigued that i do think shamlin even despite what i said of sort of keeping things close i do think using the news clips today plays a little bit differently because he actually is inviting in a way that the um, in signs were in 2002 were not invited to be skeptical of the news footage were shown right but i think now the way this plays in 2022, 2023, like he actually is inviting us to be like, you know, like in the fact that like there was an earlier program and like this is being ongoing, like we're just sort of playing it up now. Like there is that sort of like he he's aware of people's skepticism of TV news as sort of a repository of truth. And that mm-hmm. sort of builds into the uh, I think that's another aspect where we have to weigh like how much we like believe like that's not we're not totally convinced just because they put it on the right table. exactly and i think that's important though because otherwise again it would take away the choice that they have to make like a choice if ultimately it's a film about faith then it does require experiential faith but it does not like it, it's not blind faith just because somebody told you something but it's also cannot be testified by like the evidence of like these things happening if if it would then it was like well as soon as they killed you know, the Rupert Green character and things start happening. You'd be like, Oh, well, I guess it's happening. We better do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like not, you would, it's not like the, it, it would change uh, the, the nature of the decision. Like, I'm not saying that everybody would do it. Like there might be people, you know, and, and Andrew occasionally says, even if it were real, I wouldn't do it, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing as well, but it fits into his character and his emotional journey. I don't know what's going on here, but where are the keys to the truck? You guys came in through. I'm taking my family. And we're leaving. Do you really think that everything that happened today, everything we've seen, do you really think it's all just a coincidence? Yes. I think it's all coincidence. Some horrible, unexplainable coincidence. Or it has to be a trick. I have to believe that. You already don't believe that. So to to sort of wrap things up, um, how do you guys how do you guys see this as a Shyamalan film? In terms of you know where do you, is this one of his better, one of his worst, mid level? Um, and then I guess just maybe want to recap for listeners like where where are you at with sort of Shyamalan 
Anders, why don't you go first? I think you're sure. maybe the, the most. Yeah, well, I've, I've seen the fewest, I think, of his films because I, I didn't catch, you know, I kind of gave up after Lady in the Water, which I think of the ones I've seen is probably my least favorite. Um, I, I the To me, even like Split and Glass and this one, I like a lot of stuff about them. I like them more than the than certain people online. Like I, I like I liked Glass and its attack on the plausibles, as I called it. But to me, these newer ones don't feel on the same uh, level as his early two thousands run from when that or from ninety nine through two thousand four of like Sixth Sense, Unbreakable Signs in the Village. I think are probably still. Even formally, I love the way they look. These last few, they just because they're smaller scale, they're just inevitably going to look a little bit, you know, slighter, a little bit, which is fine. But maybe I would have even liked it more if M. Night Shyamalan did a, his own television show. The one I need to, re- I need to revisit uh, the village. Say, I'm gonna my, my sense is that everyone start, is started to think that the village is actually good if if they're into Shyamalan and not like not sort of like the one that he fell off but actually sort of fits his like his sort of best ones. And it does have that sort of, it's still operating on like prestige level and like talk about a movie where I mean, he was sort of the height of Shyamalan. Like when it was coming out, it was, I was very anticipating it. And, um, but it has great, you know, production values, but also a fascinating sort of like social allegory for specifically the early 2000s. A great cast. And William Hurt. Joaquin Phoenix. Adrian Brody. So, Aaron, uh, I think you've kept up the most with all this stuff. Uh, yeah, I, the only Shaman films I haven't seen are his first two. So, I've and I've seen so the means that I've seen all of his last six or whatever, like his post post fall off. I've seen all those except for, uh, in theaters, except for the visit I caught up on on yeah. uh, streaming. But um, and do you think like this one? Uh, like where? So you, what? My what? initial reaction was like, this is. I felt very similar to how I did coming out of split where I was just like really satisfied by a B movie. Well-made had a fun time. Didn't really think about it that much. The thing, the difference with this and split were like split was more of superficial pleasures where it was just a lot of fun watching James McAvoy go nuts on screen. And um, I think there's something to be said about when Shyamalan makes a really good casting decision. He kind of lets the actor guide it and then uses the camera to really accentuate like, the physicality of that performer and you get that with McAvoy and you get that with Batista here and you get that with Bruce Willis in Unbreakable um you get that with Haley Joel Osment in Sixth Sense like he really like shapes the visual tone to the character that he's he's kind of the central character um the issue is that when he miscasts he also does it <laughs> So you get a Mark Wahlberg happening where I'm just like, it's just the the weird confusion of Mark Wahlberg really like channels throughout that film where you, you're not entirely sure what the tone is at any moment because you he's not sure. The, the bees are dying. The bees no, are the, dying. No, the best, the best moment in that whole movie <laughs> is the scene where he comes in and that lady's like, you're going to kill me in my sleep. He's like, no, ma'am, I'm not. We're not going to kill you. I'd swear. <laughs> And it, and it's like, no, no, I'm not doing it. And it's like, he's trying to be genuine, but he comes across as so like fake. <laughs> that's, how Mark, that's what Mark Wahlberg's like all the time though. I know. I, I love it. But yeah. Guys, you heard about the bees? Um, <laughs> I remember I watched some of those at Wahlberg reality show. He's like that in real life. I mean, I think Wahlberg's kind of hilarious, but he yeah, is. the, the happening is not good. But um, <laughs> I, I'm not one of the, 
I'm not one of those people who's no. I think it's like pretty clearly his 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 worst of the Shyamalan films, where it's not like a gun for hire thing. Like yeah. I think you can easily say Last Airbender is probably worse, but um, Last Airbender is also for it's like very forgettable. Like I haven't thought about it at all. It's just a bad. I forgot that movie. he made it. Um, After Earth is kind of underrated. It's not. It's not good, but it's not bad. It's just kind of like a weird sci-fi action movie. Is and like that Will new Smith Adam Vanity. Driver film is gonna be like too. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's the first thing I thought about. I was like, <laughs> oh, they're just, I guess every 10 years you have to make like a really, really boring sci-fi movie um, <laughs> with an action star. Um, no, so I'm not like some of the people online who would probably say that Knock of the Cabin is, oh, it's Shyamalan's comeback. It's like, didn't we do this with Split? Didn't we do this with uh, The Visit? Like, haven't we done this already? Um but now talking about it more, I might actually like Knock of the Cabin more than any of his recent films, partially because of how the themes really are of a piece with signs and which mm. I think is his best movie. So who knows? It's the kind of film I'd actually be like happy to rewatch even in the near future and uh, see how it works a second time mm-hmm. with the, not all the kind of plot questions out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, it's so short. Like it could, I could easily fit it in. I feel like my wife would, she wanted to see it, but like I might take that opportunity if it comes up then to sort of rewatch and be like, if I know, you know, if I know what's going to happen and I'm not watching it to find out what's going to happen, how does it play that way? Um, I would say like, I think Shyamalan's definitely in sort of um, like a third stage or phase in his career. And I don't know what the exact, point would be whether you know the visit it's the visit it's the visit yeah it's i mean the b the movie phase. It, it goes b movie but i i think like i like out of the ones i've seen of this um knock of the cabin might be the best in terms of its like standalone qualities that i've seen uh, i haven't seen them all i haven't seen old um i i have a fondness for split and for glass both for mcavoy's crazy performance and then also just for the fact that I finally got like I got the the Unbreakable trilogy, and I was just actually deeply satisfied that he actually did his uh, made it happen. You know, not maybe not the way he planned it, but he made it happen. Um, the definitely the middle phase is the weakest, and so I guess maybe where I just would leave off is that it's nice to see him settling into sort of a rhythm now, and I hope every year or two he has another of these until he it in, until he sort of has a next phase but like i'll i'll keep watching them now and you know they're they're good for what they are and having that sort of like it, i mean for i would just say like it's not all the time that like even if you even if people are like you know i didn't believe the the whole how the premise plays out entirely i'll just say that frankly it's more interesting than a lot of the stories i'm told i i like these sort of what if stories mm-hmm. i think you guys talked me up from like a Maybe a three star to three and a half star. <laughs> it's like, do you like the Twilight Zone? If the answer is yes, then we should be happy that M. Night Shyamalan's out there making these movies. Now he's taking the online L's for the rest of us. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. It's good knowing he's out there, the dude, taking her easy for all us sinners. Before we end off, I'll just say if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, Three Brothers Film, check us out on there. Subscribe. Um, we're posting the clips from podcasts. We're posting full episodes. Uh, Aaron has video essays. 
and we're starting to do our deep dive uh, film reviews, audio version. So definitely check us out there as well. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>